1: Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and welcome to the podcast. If it's your first time here, this is the History Hit Warfare podcast and we are dedicated to military history from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations through to the Normandy landings and 9-11. Now in this episode, well I don't really know what more I need to say about it. It's with James Holland, one of the greatest and most popular historians of his generation and it involves me and him talking about his top five tanks. You have Shermans, you have Churchills, you have Tigers and Panzers in there, of course you do. It is one hell of an episode. What James doesn't know about tanks isn't worth knowing, as is evidenced by his new book on the Sherwood Rangers and his new TV series with History Hit TV on his favourite tanks. So, here is James Holland. James, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today?
2: Yeah, I'm all right. Nice to see you.
1: Good to see you too.
2: Where are you in the world? Currently, I am in St. Moore's in Cornwall. It's a regular trip down
1: here to Cornwall. Well, we try and come down here at least once a year anyway. Very good. Well, a well-deserved break after the new book is out. Congratulations. Brothers in Arms, One Legendary Tank Regiment's Bloody War from D-Day to V-E-Day. Is it fair to say that this book is kind of a band of brothers of the tank world?
2: Yeah, I think it is very fair to say that. In fact, actually, the inspiration for it came after a conversation with John Orloff, who was a screenwriter for some of the uh, original Brand of Brothers series. And after that conversation, we were talking about it, and I was sort of wondering what to do because of the COVID lockdown. It was going to mean that the big sort of campaign history I've been planning, it wouldn't be possible because it just wouldn't be able to travel, wouldn't be able to get to archives and all that kind of stuff. So I started thinking about it, and actually, I revisited the 1992 original book that Stephen Ambrose wrote, and... It's amazing, really. You think 1992, that was very kind of sort of radical for the time. I mean, no one had written anything like it. It's actually pretty dated now, but I think that's perhaps understandable. And for all sorts of reasons, I had a very strong connection with the Sherwood Rangers. I'd interviewed a number of the veterans. I had access to various papers and letters and journals and stuff of people who had been in the regiment during the war. And suddenly this sort of seed took hold and seemed like a really good thing to do. I was a bit nervous about sort of going down into the grandeur of one unit and a British unit rather than an American
1: unit and all the rest of it. But it all seems to have worked out okay. It does seem to have worked out okay. The one thing that Stephen Ambrose had, though, of course was that amazing ability to just go and talk to Dick Winters and the rest of them whilst writing that book. How long have you been working on this book? Because it feels like you've been doing something similar. The detail is remarkable.
2: Well, thank you. I became very good friends with David Christofferson, who is Stanley Christofferson's son. And Stanley Christofferson was in the Sherwood Rangers throughout the entire Second World War. And a few days after D-Day became the commanding officer. And I edited his journals and diaries some years ago. And in the process of that, David and I went around sort of hoovering up interviews with a number of the veterans. So I had all that anyway. They've also written a fair amount. And there's a Sherwood Rangers Association, which has all sorts of sort of papers and documents and jottings and writings from various people. Then there's quite a few interviews in the Imperial War Museum as well. And then on top of that, various people sent me stuff. So Michael Wharton sent me his father, Bill Wharton's wartime letters, for example, which are just amazing. So collectively, suddenly I had quite a decent cast list. And obviously you can't go and talk to Bill Watson, because he's sadly passed away in the 1980s. But you do have his letters, and his letters have that immediacy. they were sort of written on the day. So they are an absolute living document to how he was thinking of that precise moment when he was writing to his wife. And so you can't sort of go back to Bill and ask him questions, but you do get an kind of immediacy which you don't get when people are recording things that happened sort of 60, 70, 80 years after the event. So there's pluses and minuses, I think. And I think if you have the sort of combination of people like Stan Perry, David Render, John Semkin, these kind of guys who I was able to go and talk to at great length and follow up with with questions, then you're
1: covering all bases. Well, that's the idea, anyway. <laughs> well, it sounds like you had the historian's dream. You had some of those that you could talk to, and then you had those in-depth diaries and papers that really add that layer of detail that you need to understand the situation they're in and the movements they were made. And you say cast list... And you know what, I think you've said the right word there, because we had John Orloff on the podcast talking about the new Spielberg-Hanks epic Masters of the Air, and maybe I asked him the wrong question. I said, right at the end, I said, will we see one that focuses on the Navy? Of course, we've had the Airborne, we've gone through now to the US Air Force, will we have something on the Navy? But maybe, James, maybe it's going to be the tanks that we focus on next.
2: Well, you know, I wish. I mean, (laughs) how amazing would that be? I can't think of anything nicer. I doubt it very much, though, because it is a British regiment and, you know, Americans understandably tend to kind of make programs about Americans. And, you know, I get it. You know, that's where all the money comes from, doesn't it? I mean, it's amazing. There's barely a TV series on any of the streamers that doesn't have a large proportion coming from US bank accounts.
1: You're not wrong. Well, inspired by your new book, I wanted to go through your top five tanks today, if that's okay with you. I don't know what would be number five. Yeah, okay. Well, I have number five, let's go for the Churchill.
2: Okay. Let's
1: stay British. I think the Churchill
2: tank is interesting. Not enough of them. Very slow, but I don't think that necessarily is a problem. I think they're very well armoured. In summer of 1944, it was best armoured tank around until the Tiger IIs turned up. Low profile. Can climb up steeper slopes than just about any other tank around. And versatile as well. You know, you can put a six-pounder anti-tank gun in it. You can turn it into a flamethrower. And I think it's really important to understand that the Crocodile Churchill, which is the flamethrower, which can spew a kind of sort of napalm spray 120 yards, you know, that is really quite something. And for Germans coming up against this monstrous beast, I mean, they were sort of regarding it with the same kind of terror and awe that the Tiger tank has held. So, you know, I think it was a pretty impressive beast, to be honest. I think the big problem
1: was there just weren't enough of them. We had Tim Strickland, the son of Strick, the tank man of the Arras, on the podcast recently, and he was making that same point about the tank's ability to just climb so well. The tactical advantage that gives you, can you explain it to us in that kind of strategic context?
2: Yeah, well, it just means it can go up very steep slopes. So the problem is if you're going over a ditch or something like that, or you've got to climb up a steep slope, unless you've got something that can climb up over it, you've either got to bulldoze your way through it, or you've got to bridge it, all of which takes time and hassle and all those sort of things. So that advantage to kind of manoeuvre over really, really rough terrain is incredibly important. I mean, it was originally designed that these were going to be the mainstay of the independent armour brigades. And the idea about the independent armour brigades is that they operate with the infantry. It's a British tank, so I'm talking about the British army. And... The idea is that your armoured divisions are units, uh, formations of exploitation. So you have the grinding battle, attritional battle first, where you're kind of trying to break through the German position. And then you, once you've blasted this hole, then you have your sort of corps de chasse, which is your armoured divisions, which then burst through it. And an armoured division, just like the panther division, is not a division that's absolutely stuffed full of tanks. It's an uh, all-arms combined force of motorised vehicles, some of which are tracked, some of which aren't. But you're talking about infantry, motorised and mechanised in half-tracks. You're talking about motorised artillery. You're talking about tanks, of course, as well, reconnaissance vehicles, blah, blah, blah. So it's the whole package that can operate together and burst through and manoeuvre very quickly and with enormous amount of tactical flexibility. That's the idea. But the attritional bit doesn't require that kind of speed. Well, that's the theory in any way. What it requires is tanks that can keep pace with the infantry and can move over literally any terrain you want. And that's the genesis of the Churchill tank and why it's designed in the way it is. The problem is that there just aren't enough of them. So they end up being kind of used a lot for these Averys, which are these sort of armoured vehicles, royal engineers, which sort of, you know, for flail tanks and all sorts of things and with fascines for bridging and all sorts of other stuff. And, of course, the crocodiles as well, these flamethrowers. Whereas the independent armoured brigades are equipped with Shermans because they're the most common tank there is and there's lots of them and they have all sorts of advantages as well.
1: We're spending a lot of time on this one for a number five, but I'm fascinated by it because what did the German soldiers think of this Churchill tank with a flamethrower on it spewing napalm at them? I mean, this must have been truly terrifying.
2: Yeah, a really properly apocalyptic kind of hell. I think the sort of psychological effect of a crocodile attacking you is greater than that of a Tiger tank. Because the Tiger tank only kind of sort of, that blasts a lot and knocks out other vehicles and other artillery and stuff, but it's not necessarily particularly more dangerous to infantry than to any other tank, really. The point about it is it's the thickness of his armour and the power of his gun. But kind of big gun and armour, that's not really, I mean, it is a problem with the infantry, but that's not the biggest concern. But if you've got something that can spray you with huge sheets of napalm, That's pretty terrifying. I mean, no one wants to burn to death.
1: You're not wrong there. But let's go down to number four. What are we seeing here? Well, it depends
2: whether I'm allowed an SP gun or not. Because if we are a self-propelled gun rather than a tank, then I'd go for the Stug. So this is a Panzer Mark III tank chassis with a fixed gun on it. So it hasn't got a turret. It can't rotate. And one of the reasons for this is that what you want is you want firepower and manoeuvrability Effectively as a sort of anti tank gun, but well, it's all dual purpose because it's an anti tank gun, but it's also providing fire support and machine guns as well. The reason they haven't got the it's not turreted is because you know Germany's running out of supplies and running out of ball bearings and running out of it, and it's sort of cheaper and easier to build an SP gun than it is a proper tank. But also, it is it does mean that you can have this lower profile because it's all one big body, and the Stug was mechanically incredibly reliable. I think that's something that's really, really important. And I think, for the most part, the Germans sort of underestimated the value of mechanical reliability. You know, on their kind of sort of wish list from AFEs, Armoured Fighting Vehicles, it was very much sort of big gun, lots of armour came first. And mechanical reliability and ease of maintenance were kind of much lower down the list. And actually, those things are incredibly important, of vital importance. So I think... The Stug and the Mark IV. Panzer Mark IV is also pretty good. It's the one German tank that is being made at the start of the war and still being made, albeit in a different variant, by the end of the war. So it's a toss-up. But if I'm allowed to have a Stug, then I'm going to go for the Stug. I mean, there were so many of them compared to other AFEs that the Germans had. And they're incredibly low profile, which is a huge advantage. I mean, that is really, really important. Very, very good gun. Very sort of nippy
1: and manoeuvrable
2: and reliable. You know, I think it's a very sort of complete weapon, really.
1: So were these used in every theatre, or were they concentrated specifically on places like the Eastern Front? Where were they used?
2: Yeah, no, they're in absolutely every theatre. They're ubiquitous. They're far more common than any other armoured fighting vehicle the Germans have, by a country mile. It's Stugs and Panzer IVs are the most common. There's not that many Panzer IVs, but there's a lot more Stugs. I think it's like about 22,000, something like that. Don't quote to me, but it's that kind of level. Whereas a Tiger tank, you're talking about 1,347 made and 492 King Tigers in total. And you're talking about 6,000 Panther tanks in total. You know, it's not very many.
1: And the Tiger, of course, was, well, a formidable tank, terrifying, but very complicated, guzzled up, vast amounts and gallons of fuel, and was pretty prone to having technical difficulties, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I think it was a complete waste of time. It looked very terrifying and everyone was sort of scared about tiger tanks and, you know, obviously you didn't want to come up against one. If you and I were in a hedgerow in Normandy and suddenly we saw a tiger tank coming towards us, we wouldn't be happy bunnies, you know, because it's big and scary. It's got lots of armour, it's got a massive gun, all that kind of stuff. But it's just, it ties up so much resources producing it is so complex that you know the transmission on it is a 6-speed semi-hydraulic pre-selector gearbox designed by Ferdinand Porsche which sounds incredibly complex and is incredibly complex and the problem is is that kind of sort of vast majority of them break down and when they start coming into the battlefront with the exception of i suppose you know they're slightly going forward at Kursk in July 1943 and they're slightly going forward at various times in the uh, Tunisian campaign but for the most part they are losing the battlefield so They're not retaining it. And when you don't retain the battlefield, that's a massive problem with your equipment. If it's really massive, really heavy, really, really difficult to maintain in the field, because you can't then withdraw it from the field very easily. So your Tiger tank breaks down, and you've basically got to leave it there, and it's written off permanently. Whereas if you're in a Sherman tank, for example, and you're advancing, you can quickly kind of whisk in overnight and whisk it back, You know, it's not so heavy, not so big that you can't maintain it. You can sort it out, repair that track, sort out the damage, have it back in action by four o'clock that afternoon. You can't do that of a Tiger. You can't do that of a Panther. That's the kind of the big problems with them. They're just too complex. They require too much fuel. I mean, the principle behind it is that if you can't do mass production of the number of Sherman tanks or T-34s, then what do you do? Well, you know, you have a very, very high end tank. That is the theory. But that is only a theory. And in practice, it just doesn't work because the bigger the tank, so you've got a 56-ton tank like a Tiger or a 45-ton tank like a Panther. You then have to have bigger hoists to kind of manoeuvre engines out. You've got to have bigger tracks, thicker tracks. You've got to have more oil. You've got to have more parts. You know, a tank is an incredibly complex thing. And in, in warfare, such as the Second World War, where numbers really, really count, you want to make that very complex thing as simple as you possibly can. And the Tiger and the Panther do not adhere to those rules whatsoever. And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get manoeuvrability, and you're trying to get a really big gun. You're trying to get a powerful gun, and then having made that powerful gun, you then want to protect it. So that's why it's getting more and more up-armoured. And that's all well and good, but you've got anti-tank guns to do that role. You know, you've got mobile Pac-43s, which you can just hook up to a half-track or something else and manoeuvre it into position. You know, you're mis sort of understanding what it is that your tank is trying to do. You know, your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers or half-decent numbers, that moment has already passed and then it's too late. And then what you really want is manoeuvrability and flexibility and something that's easy to maintain and something that gives you a kind of huge amount of versatility, which you get from the Stug and which you get from the Panther Mark IV to a lesser extent, but definitely from the Stug. And... You don't actually really need your tiger and your panther. The tiger and the panther is the kind of force multiplier that it is thought to be when it is conceived because of its mechanical shortcomings. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
0: United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
1: The logistics of moving a tiger to the North Africa campaign must have been complete hell, just at the sheer size of the beast as well, and its weight. Yeah, no, absolutely,
2: it's a real problem. And of course, you know the Germans are having decreasing amounts of shipping as the war progresses, and they become shorter and shorter, of absolutely everything. So everything becomes more complicated. So at that point, having more tigers just becomes a bigger, bigger issue. It doesn't give you. Tactical flexibility on that operational flexibility that you want, it actually ties you down, which is counterproductive. So yes, there are moments where a Tiger might be coming down the street and we'll be able to knock out four Shermans, but that's not enough. That is not worth its presence on the battlefield because knocking out four Sherman tanks isn't going to win you that battle. It's not even going to win you that day. You know That's the problem. I mean, take Philip Boccage, for example. Michael Vittman goes down the street and knocks up a leading column from the 7th farmer Division. So what? I mean, you know, he knocks out 20, 22 tanks and vehicles in two days, but they lose six of their precious Tigers, of which have only got 36 in, the, in Normandy, in that same engagement. You know, and it's a small tactical victory over 36 hours, which achieves in the long term absolutely zero. It's just not worth it. I mean, you know, the British and the Americans particularly, you know, they've got the Pershing, the M26 Pershing by Normandy. You know, they could have put it into theatre, but it takes up more shipping space and it requires more fuel and it requires more maintenance And so actually they decide, "Mm, well, we won't bother with Pershing just yet. Actually, we'll kind of leave that a little bit longer and actually we'll cover the battlefield with more Shermans. And, you know, that gives you much more flexibility. And also means if you've got more of them, say something goes wrong and, you know, one tank is clearly past it and is never going to be seeing action again, but at least it's got lots of spares which can be butchered, which can then be used to kind of help pull. So numbers really gives you a flexibility that you can't have if you've got this sort of 1,347 Tiger tanks across the whole of your war effort. It's just not enough. The other problem I should just say, James, is that we always talk about the Nazi war machine. But actually, Nazi Germany was actually not particularly automotive. You know, there was sort of 47 people for every single vehicle in Germany in 1939. Well, that figure was 14 in Britain and eight in France and three in the USA. You know, So Germany is comparatively languishing behind. It. And of course, that's because of the kind of fallout of the First World War and the Great Depression and all the rest of it and the privations they suffered as a result of Versailles. But the net result of that is that they, if you're sort of a less automotive society, that means you've got less factories, it means you've got less garages, you've got less mechanics, you've got less people who you know how to drive. You know, in America, everyone knows how to drive, pretty much, when they come of age, because there's lots and lots of vehicles. And all their military vehicles are based on an American automobile, i.e., Brake, throttle, clutch, shift, stick, gearbox, you know, four forward, one reverse. It's all very, very straightforward. So you get into a Sherman tank, you know exactly how to drive it if you've driven an automobile in America. Whereas Germans don't do that. They've got to learn. And, you know, you start putting an 18-year-old who's just sort of can only drive a tank and nothing else into something as complex as a Panther or a Tiger tank. It's going to go wrong, isn't it? It's like putting someone who's just passed his driving test into a sort of Lamborghini contact. You know, it's just not going to work. You know, you're going to grind that gearbox, that finely tuned piece of engineering, and it's going to be screwed. And because they're so short of fuel, they just don't have the means of then maintaining it in the field in the way that they need
1: to. So good drivers, flexibility, reliability, they're the key things you need in the fog of war.
2: Yeah, they are in the Second World War, definitely. You know, things change. And we're talking about the Second World War, year. So definitely for the Second World War, yeah.
1: So take us down to number three. What takes this bronze medal place? Well, this is... It's getting difficult.
2: Yeah, it's getting really, really difficult. I'm going to say the Cromwell because I'm a Brit and I'm just going to sort of fly our own flag. So what I love about the Cromwell, again, is I think it's got a decent gun, it's got decent armour. It's not particularly reliable mechanically to start off with, but come so, it's really fast. And actually speed is incredibly important. In the same way that being able to climb up a steep slope is important, speed is also, speed and manoeuvrability is really, really important. How fast are we talking, James? Well, we're talking sort of, you know, 35, 40 miles an hour, something like that. Pretty fast for a tank. Yeah, but it's not just its speed of manoeuvre, it's manoeuvrability as well. It's its ability to kind of, sort of wham it into reverse, move out quickly. You know, in tank actions, if you can hit your enemy first, the chances are you're going to win, whether you're hitting a pack 43 88mm gun, whether you're attacking a panther or whatever it may be the point is to fire first so you need quick firing gun and you need maneuverability so that you can maneuver and get out of the site you know if you're a moving target you're a much harder target and again one of the problems with the panthers and tigers is they're a bit cumbersome they're a bit you know because they're so huge you know it's like comparing an hgv with a sports car so everything in a tank design is about payoffs it's all about okay you get this but you lose that you have this advantage but that comes with this disadvantage but I think the Cromwell, you know, and it really comes into its own with those armoured divisions and the exploitation after the end of the Normandy campaign, where they're sort of, you know, you've got the Guards Armoured Division making kind of 300 miles in kind of five days. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal, whatever it was, six days. You know, that's real speed. And the Cromwell really comes into its own in that. And it's got a decent gun and it's low profile and, you know,
1: it's pretty good. I'm sorry, you said making, what, 300 miles in six days?
2: Yeah, and they go faster than, you know, the fastest of the Blitzkrieg in 1940. That's what I was going to ask. That's remarkable. Yeah, you know, the British Army and the Allies particularly always get this sort of reputation for being stodgy and slow and stuff. It's like, not a bit of it. You know, when they need to go fast, they can go fast. The problem is, is they fighting against a very tough enemy with some decent kit who don't want to surrender. That's very difficult. You know, you can get to a stage in the war where you're going to win. There's no question about that. But in what time frame and with what casualties, is a completely different kettle of fish. And again, it's another of those sort of payoffs, isn't it? And I think, broadly speaking, the kind of broad-front, slow attritional rate of sort of building up overwhelming firepower and just grinding your enemy into the dust, I think, is a pretty sensible way of doing things. Because it's depending on the strengths of the Allies, which is their huge logistics support and background staff and the kind of long tail and all the rest of it, which, you know, other competent nations don't have.
1: All right, bring us down to number two. It's getting even more difficult now.
2: Well, I'm going to go for the T-34. If I can specify, I'll go for the T-34-85, which is a kind of second-generation T-34. A Soviet tank, is that yeah, right? it's a Soviet tank. And this is the most common tank ever built. I mean, this is 84,070 of these little babies. And they're not very comfortable. Ergonomically, they don't 100% work. There isn't a rotating turret cage inside, so the crew are having to kind of sort of manoeuvre around and joggle around as oh. the turret is rotating, which is not good. Inside, it's incredibly cramped. The fumes are just appalling, You know, it is not a healthy environment in which to exist. But numbers and mechanical reliability and ease of maintenance, it ticks every box. And those things are just incredibly important. You know, they really, 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 really do count. And again, very maneuverable, gives you incredible tactical versatility. The 85mm high-velocity gun is incredibly good. I mean, the previous 76mm was pretty good, but the 85 is a massive step up. And sloping armour, simplicity of tracks, Christie suspension, which was designed originally by an American and adopted by the Soviets. You know, you just cannot beat those numbers. I mean, those numbers
1: really, really are incredible. Where was this used? I'm assuming in the initial days of Operation Barbarossa, it was used to fight back at that point, and then with a more powerful gun pushing through on the Eastern Front?
2: Yeah, there weren't very many of them in 1941. It really starts sort of kicking into numbers in 1942, And by May 1944, they're producing 1,200 of these a month. And if you remember that I said that Tigers, there was only 1,347 of them built in total. And the Soviets are producing 1,200 of these every single month by May 1944.
1: That's just absolutely phenomenal. And let's put that in a little bit of context as well, because the Soviets have had to move their entire industrial base across the country and then start producing these tanks. So that is... That's phenomenal.
2: Yeah, yeah, it really is. And they're using the theory, the the principles of the conveyor belt, uh, mass production, and you know it's interesting. If you go and look at a tank, it's very, very rough and ready. And what they're doing is they're focusing on what they need to focus on and not bothering with what they don't need to focus on. You know, there's no frills at all to a T-34 is incredibly simple. But it goes back to what I was saying before that, you know, something that's incredibly complex, like a tank, you want to keep it as simple as possible because that gives you that flexibility in the battlefield. You know, it gives you ease of maintenance. It means that you're not just sort of losing them the moment anything goes wrong permanently. You know, they can be used again. Numbers mean you've always got spare parts as well, which is incredibly important. You know, they kick out vast amounts of exhaust and smoke so you can see them coming They are unbelievably dangerous to operate. You know, I'd hate to know what the figures of casualties are inside the tank. I mean, there's no real guard for the recoil, for example. You know, you can just imagine how many people were having their heads, arms, shoulders crushed by the recoil of that gun. And, you know, the 85mm is a big old boy. But for numbers, for versatility, for mechanical reliability, for
1: ease of maintenance,
2: yeah, just sheer numbers, you know, it's hard to beat.
1: And one of the crazy things for me is that, of course, during the interwar period and that early year of the war, the Soviets and the Germans had been working together, an industrial base, producing tanks, designing tanks, designing strategy, testing things out. And then they come around to face each other.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. But what is also interesting is that their approach to armoured vehicles is completely different completely different, and they look very different. I mean, you know, to start off with, the Germans have the right idea of using tanks as they're just there to support the infantry, give you a little bit of firepower, give you flexibility, the Panzer One and Two, even the Panzer Three, you know, they're super flexible, they're super manoeuvrable, they're quick, they're not very lightly armoured and lightly gunned. But that's not what they're doing, you know. I mean, when the Panzers destroy the first French First Armored Division on the fifteenth of may nineteen forty, they do so not by tank on tank actions. It's by using the tanks to lure the French tanks into a hidden screen of anti tank guns. It's the anti tank guns that destroy the tanks. That's great, there's nothing wrong with that at all. What happens is they come up against the T thirty four in the Soviet Union and suddenly think, oh my god, you know, these have got bigger tanks and bigger guns and bigger turrets, that's what we need. And so it, it just there is this complete sort of volt fast on approach to armoured fighting vehicles. And out of that spawns kind of upgunned Panzermart Panzer Mark IVs and, of course, the panther and the tiger tank and then ultimately the king tiger and even the elephant, which never comes to anything, but, but is sort of completely absurd. And I think, you know, the tiger and the panther is a sort of reaction to the very different approach that the Soviets take. And I think that's incredibly fascinating. I mean, in warfare, what happens is, that, you know, someone takes an advantage in one particular field and then the other person catches up and overtakes and, you know, so it goes on so it goes on. But it's remarkable when one thinks about how much sort of cooperation there was in the early 1930s and training programmes and all the rest of it, how very different their approaches are to armored fighting vehicles.
1: James, we're coming down to number one, that gold place. I think I know where we're going with this. I think I could take a guess. It's got to be the Sherman, hasn't it?
2: It's got to be the Sherman. And I think Sherman, I'm going to just... I'm going to slightly cheat and say Sherman in all forms, You know, whether it be the 76mm high-velocity version that the Americans do, or the Firefly, or just the bog-standard one. I think what you're getting is you're getting pretty much most of the benefits of the T-34, but not quite as many numbers, but a lot. 49,000 of Sherman built, 74,000 Sherman hulls. Again, I go back to the versatility. I go back to mechanical reliability. There is, you know, for mechanical reliability, there's literally nothing to beat the Sherman. Ergonomically, just, it's just so sensible. It's got loads of really fantastic features inside the turret as well. It's got the proper turret cater. It moves around. It's got good guards for recoil. It's got sort of no tank is comfortable, but it's more comfortable than a lot of others. It's got a very quick firing gun, which is incredibly important. It's got a very quick moving turret. Also equally important, you can manoeuvre this thing really, really fast. Backwards, forwards, left, right. This thing has a kind of manoeuvrability which is second to none. The other thing is it's got a gun stabilising gyro on it, which was completely unique to the Sherman, which means it's better for and more accurate for firing on the move. It's also got little features like it's got an override switch for the commander. So the commander's got his head and shoulders out of the turret. And if he sees something at 2 o'clock, 800 yards, normally the turret is rotated and controlled by the gunner. With an electric foot pedals, but the commander can override that with a switch under the turret where it's just within really easy reach of his hand and just maneuver it quickly and then the gunner will take over. And it can fire HE and armor piercing, so it can fire different types of shot very easily. I mean other tanks can as well, to be fair. But it's the overall package that you get from the Sherman. And it absolutely can destroy Tigers and Panthers if it needs to. I mean, George Dring of the Sherwood Rangers knocks out two Tigers, one Panther and two Panzer Mark IVs on the 26th of June 1944 with a 75 millimeter medium-velocity Sherman tank. And that's going something. And again, that goes back to the fact that that's partly experience, but it's also the fact that he is firing first. He's spotting them first. And what you would typically do is you'd just fire an arm and piercing round to start off with. That would cause damage, probably wouldn't penetrate, but would cause some damage, would get the commander of the enemy tank to close down his hatches, get into the turret, then he's effectively blind, then you pummel him with a bit of HE, then you finish him off with a bit more armour piercing before you know where you are, they're bailing out. Now you haven't actually completely destroyed it, it's not like a burning wreck necessarily, but you've disabled that tank and got the crew to surrender. That's all you need to do, because you're claiming the battlefield And the Germans are not retaining the battlefield. And so that tank is permanently lost, whether it's completely destroyed or not. And we're talking about tanks in the environment in which they're being used. And the versatility of a Sherman tank, which is used in the Pacific, which is used in the Far East, which is used throughout Northwest Europe, which is used throughout Italy, its reliability, its dependability, you know, on the top trumps, you have your kind of of production numbers, kind of mechanical reliability, ease of maintenance, firepower, fear factor, you know, it's only going to get a seven in its fear factor compared to the kind of 10 of the King Tiger, for example. But you tally up all those points as a clear winner.
1: There's tens of thousands of these made as well. Are we talking up to something like 50,000?
2: Yep, 49,000, yep. And then 74,000 Sherman hulls, which were then adapted for other things. And again, that sort of underlines the versatility of its manufacture and its mechanical reliability that you can convert it into all sorts of other things. And again, you know, it's got the same track and suspension system on a Sherman tank as it has on a Sexton, as it has on a Priest, which are self-propelled artillery to you know an M10 or an M18 tank destroyer etc etc you know so your Sherman tank might be knocked out but it might still have some very valuable parts on it which you could then put onto an M18 or you could put onto a Sexton or something like that because the parts are all the same and they're completely interchangeable that really really counts gives you massive battlefield flexibility if you're a commander
1: Talking about that flexibility, we spoke about the Tiger and the fact it was difficult logistically to move and repair. Sounds like the Sherman is easy to repair. Is it easy to move? Because as the Allies are moving forward as quickly as possible, does the Sherman form a spearhead to our attack?
2: Yeah, it's a multi-role tank. So it can do anything you want. It can do infantry support, but it can also do the corps de chasse kind of exploitation. Because again, it's pretty... I mean, most of these tanks can do sort of 25 miles an hour. But it's not just the kind of the speed with which it can go on a long straight road. It's how quickly can it corner? How fast can it manoeuvre through a village? Again, this is another good reason for not having kind of massive tanks. You know, a lot of the villages you're going to go through, whether they be... I don't know, in Italy or whether they be in Northwest Europe, you know, that you're talking about some pretty old buildings and pretty old streets which are narrow and not designed for kind of massive great fifty-six ton tanks. So again, that gives you that kind of flexibility. You know, you can sort of take it anywhere. It can get through anything. I mean, you know, it doesn't have the steepest climb, you know, but the Churchill can do that. But you know, if you need to change an engine, you could change an engine in the field in two hours if you need it, as long as you've got the right kit. But of course, because it's only a 30-ton tank. You don't need quite such heavy lifting kit as you would for a much bigger tank like the Pershing or the Tiger. So again, that gives you that kind of flexibility. You know, it's very, very important that one looks at these things in the round. It's not just about lining two tanks up on a football pitch and firing and seeing who wins. It's the whole package. It's the whole picture. It's ease of maintenance. It's cost per unit. It's how much steel does it use? How many interchangeable parts does it use? How easy is it to repair? What flexibility does it give you? And I would just say that I think that The complexities and modernities and sophistications of the Sherman tank are the right bits. And the simplicity of the Sherman tank is also organised in the right way.
1: Well, James, you have given us the whole package. That was incredible. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say you've also got a new tank documentary out on History Hit TV. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, we're doing four half-hour programs, and we've done the first two. Well, again, one's not, strictly speaking, a tank because it's a Yag Panther, which is a Panther chassis with a PAK 43 88mm gun on it, but it hasn't got a rotating turret. So, strictly speaking, it's a self-propelled gun. And we've also done the T3485, which um, I was just talking about a moment ago. We're due to do the Cromwell and the Sherman, but ironically, the Sherman is out that we were supposed to be working with is having engine problems at the moment. I been talked about it, its mechanical <laughs> reliability. I've now been sort of shot myself in the foot. So we're having a slightly frustrating time because the Cromwell's having some carburettor issues, but this is a freshly restored tank. It looks absolutely amazing, the Cromwell. It is fantastic. But inevitably, when you do a restoration project like this, you know, it's just a small crew of people. There are certain teething issues, and they've come to the fore. But just the moment those are back in action, we'll be heading up there with the cameras and doing our
1: film and finishing off the series. So if our listeners want more on tanks, tune in to History Hit TV. You've got four incredible episodes there. And, of course, go out and buy the book, out now, Brothers in Arms. James, thank you so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok, also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.